0: It's been five long years since the last European Championships. Now that the countdown for June is well and truly on, I'm getting incredibly excited. The Euros is a tournament in which there are no free hits, no North Korea or Saudi Arabia ready and waiting to boost the goal difference. It's a chance for England fans to ramp up the expectations once more, only to realise that football's quite enjoying its round-the-world trip and still doesn't fancy coming home. Today, we want to celebrate some of the players who've shone on this stage, for one reason or another, have become synonymous with this tournament. Welcome to the 11. Yes, the Euros 11. I, I guess I see the European
1: Championships, Arthur, as it's almost like the latitude festival of major tournaments. Um, everyone's drawn to the World Cup, the Glastonbury, if you like, but. Where the best music is at is at latitude, and I feel that way about the euros. it never ever lets you down.
0: yeah, I think that's fair to say i think I think the quality is just all round everyone is just incredibly good and I think obviously you're missing the likes of Brazil, Argentina, uruguay um but you know I think I think the quality is is so so strong um and so many stars kind of announce themselves on. The international stage for the first time. I think it's a, a springboard to some pretty big transfers as well in the summer afterwards.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Arthur. Um, and it's those players that we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be picking an 11. Uh, we've gone for a three five two formation for the first time in this podcast
0: history. It's ludicrously attacking. I don't quite know why we're doing it, but I think there wasn't so much um, left and right wing back talent that we were, we were looking to pick from. And we wanted to, to celebrate the midfielders because those are the players who really do contribute on that stage.
1: Yeah, it's gung-ho today. Um, if you've got any suggestions for the Euros 11 players that made their name at the European Championships, um, then please do get in touch with us at 11pod. Uh, that's the word and not the number. Plenty of Europe's best goalkeepers have announced themselves on the stage at the Euros. Um, Arthur, who's going to be in goal for our eleven?
0: So we're not huge fans in this podcast of picking high-profile players, and I've actually just... I've done that. (laughs) Oh,
1: well, where's the obscure
0: angle gone to, Arthur? Well, I picked Peter Schmeichel. The best goalkeeper ever. Yes. (laughs) Basically... I'm picking him for his performance in Euro 1992, right? when quite severe underdog Denmark managed to win the championships, which was extraordinary. And this is a stage, I think, where Peter Schmeichel wasn't the goalkeeper we know now, you know, one of the best mm. goalkeepers of all time. This was a goalkeeper who just signed for Man United. He was starting to make a name for himself there, but you know, you said you said before, like, this is a stage where players are able to announce themselves. And mm. for me, this is where Peter Schmeichel said, I am the best goalkeeper. This was um, his platform. It was his platform. Um, Denmark arrived at the championships in a bit of a sort of lull. They had a bit of a golden generation in the mid 80s. Um, players such as Frank Arneson, Michael Laudrup, Alan Simonson, they had some fantastic players and they got to the Euro 1984 semifinal. But by the early 90s, they were very much over the crest of that hill. In 1988, they lost all three of their matches in the European Championships and they didn't even qualify for the 1990 World Cup. So they arrived at this championships with expectations at an all-time low. And they actually only got in the championships by a bit of luck. The USSR dissolved at the end of 1991 so they became the Commonwealth of Independent States. Um, but just 11 days before the European Championship kicked off, Yugoslavia were disqualified um, because the UN had imposed um, some sanctions on the Balkan War combatants. And right. So Denmark, who were group runners-up in qualifying, took their place. So they weren't even supposed to be in the <laughs> Championship. There. I didn't know that. They had Brian Laudrup, but yeah. not... Michael Laudrup, who was arguably one of the best players in Europe at the time, um, as he'd fallen out with the management. So they started it all with with a nil-nil against England. And Schmeichel was absolute quality in that game. He pulled off loads of brilliant saves. uh, And they actually managed to beat tournament favourites France to get through to the knockout stage. So they were already defying expectations. But it's in the semi-final where Schmeichel really kind of made his name. They were against the Netherlands... A team that boasted players such as Burkamp, Van Basten, kuman Frank Rijkaard. They had some absolute quality in that team, and in the in the penalty shootout that ensued, Schmeichel saved Marco Van Basten's penalty, and it was just such a big moment in European Championship history. Van, Van Basten, obviously a quality player, Schmeichel, the penalty shootout hero, um, and I think he he said he said that I think both. Netherlands in the semi-final and the Germans who met them in the final had both been expecting kind of just easy games and neither of them got it. He kept a clean sheet as, as Denmark managed to beat Germany 2-0 in the final. Um, strings of clean sheets um, and just quality goalkeeping. I think he made two absolutely unbelievable saves from Jürgen Klinsmann in the final. Um, and they delivered glory, which is, I I mean... You know, I know there, are, there have been some surprises over the years, but I think this was an enormous one. Yeah, a huge shock. And, and so many great goalkeepers over the years
1: not managed to win a major tournament. So for Schmeichel to do that at such a young age was impressive and really announced himself on the scene. I know a lot of that Danish squad from 92 um, were scouted and went to the bigger clubs in Europe. But several flopped. Uh, John Jensen springs to mind. He went to Arsenal and, and never made the grade. But obviously, Schmeichel sustained this incredible form during his club career, which I find particularly impressive.
0: Exactly. There, there was an interesting quote from the, the Danish manager, uh, a way of describing Peter Schmeichel. And this was after the semi final, his penalty um, shootout heroics. He described him rather bizarrely as that wonderful big mouse. And I just still can't really quite make sense of it. I I think it must be some sort of mistranslation or I don't know. But anyway, he'll always be that wonderful big mouse to us here on The Eleven. That's an Um, incredible quote. It is a bit. Just reading
1: about Peter Schmeichel now, actually, (laughs) what's amazing is that his career started... Um, In such bizarre circumstances, I'm always fascinated by how players get into the game. And he certainly wasn't one that had gone up through the academy ranks and and just gradually made it to the big time. And a couple of his first jobs, uh, having left school, were uh, in the dyeing department of a textile factory. But apparently safety concerns led to his resignation. Uh, And then he spent 12 months as a cleaner in an old people's home before taking up a job working in the shop uh, for the World Wildlife Fund. Um, There we go. An incredible turn of events. And then just uh, several years later, three or four years
0: later, there he is on the biggest stage of all, uh, winning the Euros for Denmark. How different it could have been for Peter. Um, I I do do think as well um, a point worthy of note was that um, it was a huge surprise, Denmark winning this, but they did play a little bit of anti-football at times. Um, they they uh, loved the, the fact that the pass-back rule hadn't been invented in football yet. And so they took advantage of this, constantly passing back to Schmeichel, who was the sort of linchpin at the back, always asking for the ball, always picking it up after, you know, that dramatic pause <laughs> when the striker is forced to run towards the ball to pressurize you and then you pick it up. Um, and they outlawed the pass-back shortly after this tournament. It prompted the rule change. Um, so that was uh, that's uh, one one negative in the in the box of the Danish, but I think this was the moment where Peter Schmeichel announced himself on the big stage, and obviously his future career at Man United showed that he was every bit a massive massive talent. Well, wow, Peter Schmeichel in goal for the Euros eleven. I mean, you can't get
1: much better than that. Um, So three centre-backs in this gung-ho formation that we've gone for. Uh, And I'm going to kick us off with uh, a Romanian rock author. Um, He was utilised at left-back during the first part of his career, but he translated into more of a centre-back or even sweeper um, as he got older. He made 75 caps for his country, uh, and that is Christian Kivu. Oh.
0: Brilliant player. Inter Milan legend.
1: Yeah, I was going to say you might remember him from his time at Inter and Roma. And of course, he was iconic for wearing that headgear. Um, He suffered a a fractured skull in a game actually against Kievo, So he wore that in the latter part of his career um, as as protection. Um, Unusual to see an outfield player wearing that headgear. Um, He was part of Romania's squads in uh, Euro 2000 and then again in Euro 2008. Um, But really, it was Euro 2000 where he burst onto the scene. Um, He was just 19 years old, uh, and he'd only been capped for his country four times prior to the tournament. Um, So actually, it was a bit of a shock when he was called up to the Romania squad for the tournament. Um, The manager at the time was Emmerich Genet. Um, who sprung the surprise on Kivu, uh, but it was vehemently contested by the Romanian press. Um, They considered Stefan Nanu to be the more appropriate pick, um, who was far more experienced than Christian. Um, But his critics were overruled, really, when they saw his impressive speed and elegant touches throughout the tournament. Um, He famously scored a goal um, in their 3-2 win over us, uh, over England, where uh, what appeared to be a chipped cross come shot uh, looped over David Seaman uh, and went in off the post. Um, so he, he had an outstanding tournament, actually, and, and started to catch the eye
0: of, of a number of uh, the biggest clubs in Europe. Yeah, he's an absolutely quality centre back, Christian Kivu, um, obviously playing for some of the bigger sides in Italy, but doing it on the international stage for a smaller nation, Romania, obviously, it had some iconic players through the years, but not exactly known as a powerhouse. Um, no, and no. Beat England as well with a with a dramatic goal, incredible.
1: They had a talented side, but I think Kivu was the surprise package of that tournament. Um, it was around that time that he was starting to come through um, at Ajax, uh, and he actually won the the uh, Van Basten Award for young talent. Um, this is an award that. They give out every year, and it's also been won by the likes of Kanu uh, Benny McCarthy, and Raphael Van Der Vaart. So um, he was seen as highly promising there, um, but actually in his in his early days at Ajax, he received no no less than four red cards uh, in his appearances. So. Um, it took him a while to adjust, but as you say, once he would got Euro 2000 under his belt, there was no looking back. He had a successful time out in Italy with Roma and Inter Milan, um, and by the time Euro 2008 came round, he was he was really the the older, experienced head within that Romanian side, uh, and he earned great plaudits for um, his performances against Italy and France, um, even though. Um, his side got knocked out in the group stage he was playing in a holding midfielder role um, and he was highly commended for the way that he adapted to that so I kind of felt like Kivu was playing for a nation that perhaps weren't favoured in the Euros but managed to use that tournament Euro 2000 as a springboard to what was a a hugely successful career Um, he was an an underrated free kick taker, he had a shot on him he was quick, he was agile and he was ultra reliable Um, so he had all the promise, he had all the
0: talent uh, and this was really his chance to shine Absolutely and I guess stepping up into that Euro 2000 team swiftly following the, the famous blonde Romanian team of 98 <laughs> Exactly it, It's not an easy thing to follow that I wouldn't say uh, Well you wouldn't have seen it under his headgear I guess that's the only thing we
1: can say about Christian Kivi
0: Perhaps the, that's why he didn't get the call up earlier they thought yeah. no you know we can't have that headgear, have
1: that headgear <laughs> yeah. right. It's not on brand Christian Yeah
0: Um, I've decided to choose a player who I think is part of an incredibly successful team, but often is, you know, he falls a little bit under the radar and it's Carlos Marchena. Okay, yeah, right. He was a he was a very important part of that incredible Spanish team who claimed their first major title in 44 years when they won the 2008 um European championships did he play he did play he was actually uh, the starting central defender he played five out of their six games from the start in All that right. tournament and actually when people think of Spanish centre-backs they think of in that in that time they think of Sergio Ramos and Carlos Puyol mm. and actually to accommodate Marchena in central defence they shifted Ramos out to right back um so he was the Tough tackling central defender to partner Carlos Puyol at the back. Their defense in this in the five games he played, they conceded only two goals in five games, uh, both in the group stages. So they didn't even concede in the knockout stages. And it was his hard work and man marking skills um, that actually not only saw him start for Spain, but saw him in in the team of the tournament, which is incredible. Um, he was especially outstanding in that two thousand and eight. Uh, quarter-final against Italy. So Italy were 2006 World Cup winners, obviously, um, and he successfully snuffed out the aerial threat that was pretty strong from Luca Toni, but a bit of a towering forward who was who's famed for his heading ability. They they drew nil-nil with Italy, so again not conceding before winning on a, in a dramatic penalty shootout. It was an absolutely enormous tournament win for Spain. It obviously kick-started a, a run of unprecedented success um, with a World Cup win and then Euro um, to consecutive Euro titles in 20, 2008 and 2012. Yeah, I think he's just often overlooked. You know, you see Ramos, Puyol, Hierro, uh, PK. They all spring to mind, but I think Marchena is just criminally overlooked. Yeah, I'm not going
1: to lie. I had no idea Marchena played such a big role in that 2008 side. So that's a, a really interesting pick. Um, I noticed later in his career, he uh, he made one appearance for the Kerala Blasters out in the Indian Super League, uh, which is,
0: is is proof really that this was the springboard to success for Carlos I mean, Martinez. That, that's that's where all all international superstars end up. So I mean, it was a natural move for him at that stage. Obviously, you know he's a Valencia club legend. Yeah, um, three hundred and seven games for for the club. Um, and I think w- one defining feature of his game was he was a tough tackler. And I think that slightly bucked the trend in that Spanish team. is perhaps why um, they wanted to include him in that team. Um I think something to show this is the fact that he, in his 307 games for Valencia, picked up 94 bookings. Wow! Which is a, a pretty, uh, pretty stupendous figure. That um,
1: really is because he looks so quintessentially Spanish, and um, he does. I don't think there is a more Spanish name than Carlos. So, <laughs> for, for him to have that swashbuckling side of his game, I guess does make him stand out. Um, you can stand alongside Christian, um, and on the other side of you um, is going to be an Icelandic legend. Um, I just felt after the achievements of that 2016 Euros, we we couldn't omit um, a player from the Icelandic squad. Uh, So I've gone for Ragnar Sigurdsson. That
0: was a sad memory, that that tournament for us. I I I was actually, I was in Greece at the time and I was watching... um, watching on a sort of small television in this nice little uh, nice little bar. And the expectations were so high that we would dispatch the Icelandic so easily. But no,
1: <laughs> I'm just welling up
0: even thinking about
1: it. It was just horrible. I mean, I felt, uh, you know, Joe Hart when he was sort of punching the wall in the tunnel. That I feel is where it all went wrong. It, yeah. it was it was a hideous thing to watch unfold. Um, And Ragnar was right at the heart of that misery for us all. Um, He was a six foot two centre half um, and it was his goal um, that got Iceland up and running in that game um, in the last 16 against England. He was named man of the match. um, And I don't know whether you remember his tremendous last ditch tackle on Jamie Vardy um, to deny uh, it was an almost certain goal-scoring opportunity um, and that no doubt saved the match for his country. He was outstanding in that game. Um, he he actually has, has recalled the story of that match several times in the media, but this quote particularly stood out for me. He said, In the tunnel before the game, it was my feeling that they looked down on us by miles. They were so sure they were the better team and were going to destroy us. I didn't know what they were thinking, but that's the feeling I got. That's how they looked to me. And when they scored early on, that's what killed them. They got the first goal and thought it was going to be a walk in the park. And then things changed. So I think there was just this sense in that Icelandic side that they were always going to be the underdogs, no matter who they came up against. And that almost gave them a little bit of a spur of of, of emotion and drive to try and get them get themselves over the line. And they played some remarkable football during the tournament. They were easily one of the best sides to watch. The smallest nation ever to qualify for a major tournament made it through to the quarterfinals. Um, and we saw the emergence of, of course, Ragnar Sigurdsson, his namesake, Gylfi Sigurdsson, who was already prominent in the Premier League, but um, rose to a whole new level of, of stardom. Um, the emergence of Bjarki Bjarnason, who went on to play for Aston Villa, um, and also a, a great deal of credit around that time for Aaron Gunnarsson, who was the the captain of of Iceland and also Cardiff. In terms of Ragnar. Um, This was meant to be the springboard for him. He was already quite late in his career. He'd had spells um, mainly in Scandinavia with FC Copenhagen um, and IFK Gotteberg. But there were rumours after the tournament that he might even go to White Hart Lane. He ended up at Fulham, who were in the championship, um, quite a significant undisclosed fee, um, but he flopped. Absolutely horribly. Um, so, some of the reviews of Ragnar Sigurdsson on Fulham fan sites are are pretty damning. Um, and he claims himself, to be honest, that he thought he was too good for the second tier in English football, switched off, made silly mistakes. Um, and in fact, the most embarrassing moment of his time at Fulham uh, was when he was leading the back line in a friendly against Chelsea, uh, where they lost 8-2. It's a shame that, it never was meant to be for Ragnar Sigurdsson, but I think he was an icon of a tournament, um, which reminded us why uh, why the underdogs are so exciting to watch, and, and why it's great sometimes when
0: a minnow does make it um, to to the major major tournament. Very very good pick, and that's our back line for the eleven. Okay, it's time for a little bit of entertainment. And today I've created a European Championships quiz. Oh, I love a quiz. Good. So there are a few multiple choice, uh, a few are not. Right. Uh, it's just a, just a little quiz for both you and the listeners to, to test their European Championships knowledge. Uh, to see, to see how, quite how good you are at this. I think
1: I'm going to get a lot of stick on at 11 pods when I prove how little I know about the
0: European Championships here. Well, we will see. Question one. What, who was the country to win the very first Euros in 1960? Oh, gosh. So I'll give you a multiple choice here. Yeah. You got Soviet Union, mm. West Germany. Yeah. Or France. West Germany. Incorrect. It was ah, Soviet Union. Darn. With the, with the legendary Lev Yashin in goal. Right. Um, possibly the, the greatest goalkeeper of all time. He was a very interesting one to, to research. Actually, I was very much considering him for, for the goalkeeping berth in this team. Nice. Well, that's question one two. down. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Moving swiftly on to question two. Name the first siblings to play mm. against each other from different countries. Ooh. And this was at European Championships in 2016.
1: I think I do know this.
0: I think it was Granite
1: Xhaka for Switzerland and his brother, um, who's also called
0: Xhaka. who Can you played for the first Val- name? It's, um, <laughs> it's It's Taulant Xhaka. Taulant very good Xhaka, yes. Very, very good knowledge, Ben. Uh, the the Xhaka brothers facing off Um, I can't actually remember who won that that clash I'd imagine it would be Switzerland um, the slightly stronger of the two nations but um, perhaps you could let us know (laughs) (laughs) yeah please do get in touch and do our research for us (laughs) at 11pod thank you Uh, question three who was the top scorer at the 2016 European Championships I'll give you a multiple choice you've got Cristiano Ronaldo yeah Romelu Lukaku Yeah. Or Antoine Griezmann. Antoine Griezmann. Yeah, okay. You got that easy once I gave the multiple choice. Nice. Six goals, five of which came in the knockout stages. He was absolutely crucial to their second place finish. (laughs) (laughs) Question four. Only one final has been decided by replay. Who was it? (laughs) Was it Spain in 1964 Italy in 1968, or Czechoslovakia in 1976?
1: I think I can rule one out. Um, so I'm going to go for Italy.
0: Ben, you pulled a rabbit out of the hat. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I, I found this story quite fascinating because in the semi-final, they beat the Soviet Union on a coin toss. <laughs> oh, I read about this. It's unbelievable, isn't it, to That's think that amazing. would happen nowadays? It's crazy, and then against Yugoslavia in the final, uh, they played until after extra time when it was when it was one all. So they decided to to play at the replay two days later, which Italy then won two nil. Um, so obviously penalty shootouts had yet to be introduced, and I think yeah. they just decided that perhaps two coin toss victories in a row would be a bit too much it's for just Italy. Just
1: insanity.
0: I know. I mean. It- I'm um, no disrespect
1: to Italy, but that must be one of the most undeserving major crowns <laughs> ever given Possibly. out.
0: <laughs> Possibly. Uh, and finishing off question five in Euro 2012, which three Marios scored <laughs> three goals each? Oh, uh,
1: Mario Balotelli. Yep. Mario Götze.
0: Incorrect. Ah. Uh, Can you Mario- name the other two? mario gomez correct and one more um hmm. no it's not coming to me no it's mario manzukic ah
1: yes Croatian.
0: Yeah. Mm. the three marios obviously Götze, i think scored the world cup final winning goal in the following uh yeah tournament, yeah but, uh, no he only scored one in that in that tournament did any luigi score i think there are a few luigi goal scorers i imagine yeah I'm not sure. yoshi uh, no.
1: We need someone to run this midfield engine, Arthur. Um, the Euros 11. Who's in centre midfield?
0: Yeah, Ben, to run this midfield, I've decided to go for Ronnie Whelan.
1: Ronnie Whelan?
0: What, the Republic <laughs> of Ireland international? Correct, the Liverpool captain uh, from 1988. Uh, when he went to the European Championships with Ireland, their first ever European Championships. Um, okay. And I've decided to pick him simply because of what I perceive, and I think many would perceive, as Ireland's overachievement in that tournament, um, which might sound a little bit insulting because they didn't even make it out of the group stages. <laughs> this feels like the roguest shout you've ever given on the eleven, Arthur. Yeah, I mean, it might be. It might be. Um, what I would say is Ireland were drawn in, I think what you could say is the, the most group of death, group of death ever. Okay, um, They had England, USSR, and the Netherlands. Um, USSR and the Netherlands went on to meet in the final. And England, of course, were a, a, a very good footballing nation as well. In the first game, they pulled off a massive upset by beating England. A goal from Ray Houghton separating the two teams. They won 1-0. Um, Ireland were managed at the time by Jack Charlton. So it was very much uh, an Englishman getting one over on the English, uh, which was quite a nice little storyline brewing. He's a hero Uh, out there, isn't he? Absolutely. And uh, in the second game, they played against the USSR. And it's in this game where Ronnie Whelan really made his name. They were playing against, obviously, a brilliant side. uh, And they managed to take the lead. Uh, a Mick McCarthy long throw, which was met by Ronnie Whelan on a volley, an overhead kick. Absolutely unbelievable overhead kick. It Amazing. was a little, bit, a little bit shinny, like Wayne Rooney's one against Man City, but it sort of just got just the, the, exactly the right amount of curl into the top corner. <laughs> just just and, the right amount of shin to get it in yeah, the top just, corner. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> it was just such an iconic goal. Uh, that I think it, it etched his name in in uh, in Irish folklore. And they went on to not qualify from this group. They lost okay. to the Netherlands in the final game, um, narrowly. But as I say, those two did meet in the final, the USSR and the Netherlands, um, the Netherlands coming out on top. Uh, and so the fact that they managed to, I mean, finish above England in the group and almost qualify is exceptional. And I think Ronnie Whelan was such a, a, uh, a workhorse in the engine room for that Irish team. They had some brilliant players. They had Paul McGrath, uh, Chris Houghton, Tony Cascarino. Um, and and I, I just think it needed to be mentioned in this 11 I'm just watching this goal back now,
1: Arthur, against the USSR. I mean, the thing that impresses me is the throw. I mean, that is the most enormous long throw I've ever seen in my life met by the most enormous amount of shin
0: I think I've ever seen on a volley. I mean it's disappointing. It's it's one of those one of those ones where if he'd met it with the laces, people would probably say it's one of the best goals of all time. Because the fact that he meets a throw-in on the volley doesn't even let it bounce, just goes
1: for it. It is remarkable. I mean it's one of those where you say it's one of those it's it's rebounded off his shin at such an angle that the goalkeeper, no what goalkeeper in the world is going to stop that. That's what the
0: commentators would have been saying. Um, Absolutely. And who knew, I, who knew that Mick McCarthy was the Rory Delap of the 80s? It's just an amazing goal. And I do think that's
1: worth checking out. I have to say, I was hugely sceptical when you mentioned Ronnie Whelan, but I think just for the most iconic shinned overhead kick I've ever seen in my life, he probably does deserve a spot in the Euro eleven. Well, we need someone alongside Ronnie um, that's going to add a little bit of flair. Uh, and that's Antonin
0: Panenka. OK, I, I I must say, I, I recognise the surname, but I haven't heard about this man's career. Yeah, funny you should say that, Arthur. I mean, he
1: was playing back in the 70s, so it was before our time. Um, but he's most famed for his um His goal in the 1976 World Cup final, um, it had gone to penalties uh, between his side, Czechoslovakia and West Germany, and he scored the winning goal in the shootout. Um, But it wasn't just any old penalty. Um, The clue is in the name Penenka. Uh, He was the player who first played the Penenka penalty. He's most famed for the part that he played in the 1976 uh, Euros final. Uh, it was his team, Czechoslovakia, up against West Germany. Uh, the game had gone to penalties. So, of course, a nervy occasion. You're in the final of the Euros, you'd think. Just get your head down, mate, and blast it straight down the centre. Surely that's the obvious thing to do. Um, but no, uh, Antonin Panenka tried something that no one had done before. He softly chipped the ball up just after the goalkeeper had dived off to his left-hand side uh, and the ball bobbled into the empty net. Uh, it became known as the Panenka style penalty and, and has now been used by tons of players across the world as a way of feigning the goalkeeper.
0: I think um, I, I had absolutely no idea that he'd first tried it in a, a European Championships final. I mean, that is to, to, to christen such a move in such a big occasion, I mean... Obviously, we saw um, Andrew Pirlo making a fool out of Joe Hart um, yeah. in, a, in a European Championships, but, you know, that wasn't the final. Uh, no. To do it in the final is incredible. But, and the winning penalty. Um, I mean, there is a story
1: behind the Penenka penalty. He, um, he used to play for Bohemians Prague, Um, During his his club career Uh, and after training, he used to stay behind with the goalkeeper and take penalties and they used to play and bet um, with a bar of chocolate or a glass of beer. Um so they, they did this so often, apparently, that the goalkeeper was almost telepathic with Penenka's penalties. And he found himself always having to experiment and come up with new ways of scoring so he could win the chocolate bar. He said, I got the idea and then I started slowly testing it and applying it in practice. As a side effect, I started to gain weight. I was winning the bets every week. In the end, I chose the penalty in the final because I realised it was the easiest and simplest way of scoring a goal. It's a simple recipe. But as simple as he says it is, it was absolutely revolutionary at the time. Um, Pele, the Brazilian forward, said, anyone who takes a penalty like that must be either a genius or a
0: madman. I completely agree with Pele. I think it's such a bold thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, you, look, you make the goalkeeper look foolish if it, ha- if it works, and you yourself look incredibly foolish if it doesn't. We saw, obviously, earlier this season, Adamola Luckman looking incredibly foolish, attempting it in a key Fulham relegation battle game. And it it just went straight into the goalkeeper's arms. <laughs> yeah,
1: you... it's become synonymous with an arrogance about footballers, hasn't it, when people play the Plenenka penalty? Um, I mean, some iconic misses over the years in that style. Jan Kermagant in the playoff semi final for Leicester. Um, a player very dear to my heart, but having an absolute shocker in that instance. Um, You mentioned and There's a great video as well out there on YouTube of Li Chunyu playing for Xizhuang Everbright um, in the Chinese League. It's the 90th minute, his side win a penalty at 2-all against um, Guangzhou. uh, And he impressively chips the ball straight at the goalkeeper who stands still and catches it with ease. Um, looks an absolute twerp in the process. Um, but yeah. the person who who started this all off was Penenka. And, and I think the bit about this story that I love is the fact that he was such an ordinary man. <laughs> he, he really didn't have anything flashy about him, Penenka. Um, He was a quality passer of the ball, good at set pieces. Um, but he had a very modest career, um, mainly in Czechoslovakia, but also playing for Rapid Vienna for a while. There was nothing audacious about him,
0: um, but he did... He did start this trend. In this incredibly attacking team, mm. um, I mean, it might be sensible to select a defensive midfielder to uh, to add a bit of a steel to the back. I don't think I've so. I've decided, no, I mean, I, I needed to go for an attacking midfielder. Yeah. I think what we're trying to do with this team, Arthur, is imagine we are permanently 2-0 down. And pushing for that comeback. Yeah. And I can think of no one better to do that than attacking midfielder Paul Gascoigne. Gazza. Gazza. One of the game's great characters, rarely out of the headlines. He was possibly the most gifted English player of his generation uh, and maybe of all time. Um, He obviously had his his issues off the field and that's perhaps the reason why he couldn't fulfil his enormous potential uh, to the absolute max, certainly in domestic football. Um, His creativity and brilliance were there for all to see uh, in Euro 1996. It was, I I mean, a tournament that started off awfully for England. Um, The the build-up was far from ideal. England followed a friendly in Hong Kong with photos of their players out on the the lash, including Gascoigne, in Mm. a so-called dentist's chair, that was splashed all over the tabloid newspapers. Uh, and it just was was far from the ideal start. The tournament itself started pretty poorly as well. Uh, a lacklustre one-all draw with Switzerland um, before England's fortunes changed in a matter of seconds. Uh, against Scotland in their second group game, they were 1-0 up uh, when David Seaman saved Gary McAllister's penalty. And then moments later... Gascoigne sensationally doubled the lead as he flicked the ball over Colin Hendry's head with his left foot and then volleyed in with his right foot. It was an absolutely iconic goal of the European Championships. Mm. Uh, and, and England, of course, then went on to, to beat Scotland by that two-goal win. So, And then England obviously went on to beat Scotland 2-0, um, leaving them with a match against the Netherlands uh, where they sparkled. They won 4-1. Gaza was heavily involved in two goals. It really did seem that football might be coming home, finally.
1: It, I think it's one of the most
0: devastating tournaments that we've ever had to watch unfold. The build-up to that Euros was so exciting in this country. Uh, it was obviously hosted in this country um, 30 years since our World Cup triumph and obviously that um, brilliant uh, Lightning Seeds song Three Lions came out um, mm. with some I, I just that's one of my all-time favorite football songs I know there aren't many football songs to compare yeah. it against yeah but you've not just... you've not picked a, a massive <laughs> genre there are no it's, it's true the bits of commentary in that that obviously uh, relate to our our uh, lack of success in major tournaments <laughs> run true in this because um, we obviously lost uh, 6-5 on penalties to Germany in the semi-finals um, obviously, that famous Gareth Southgate uh, penalty miss. But Gaza actually, in that game, came inches from turning in an Alan Shearer cross uh, to score what would be the first ever golden goal. Um, but obviously, we 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 missed out. Um, and I think that's the Euros where it became so apparent that Gaza was one of the best players in the world uh, and capable of delivering glory for England. I, I think this great quote sums up Gazza as a player. Mm -hmm. uh, And it's from Dino Zoff, who was a brilliant Italian goalkeeper and was his then manager at Lazio. He said, he ate ice cream for breakfast, drank beer for lunch, and when injured, he blew up like a whale. But as a player, oh, beautiful, beautiful. I loved that boy. He was a genius, an artist, but he made me tear my hair out. And I just love that quote for... I think it just displays Gaza's kind of love of life off the pitch, uh, yeah. and that's possibly what what meant he didn't fulfil his his uh, potential on the pitch. But it just shows what a brilliant player he was on his day. Yeah, he's he's one of the nation's sweethearts in a way
1: because he was such a character. Um, but Gaza, at his very best, just should have won a major major tournament. He was easily good enough to, um, and I
0: think he fits brilliantly in this midfield personally. Exactly. Just, just one final story to show what a character he was. Um, he's got a bit of a unique piece of history right. uh, at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. He once dented the iconic golden cockerel that sat okay. proudly at the top of White Hart Lane with an air rifle. Um, so when the club uh, created a scaled up replica for their new stadium that they opened a couple of seasons ago, they wanted it to be identical Including the imperfection caused by Gazza's tomfoolery, so there's a dent in the cockerel. That is a bit of a nod to Gazza's uh, shotgun. So moving on to left midfield, Ben, who have you got for us? Well, I've
1: picked um, one of
0: Europe's bad boys, to be honest, Arthur,
1: um, a player that I didn't really know was such a scoundrel off the pitch until I started my research, Andre Arshavin.
0: Oh, very good player. A Brilliant Gunners, for Russia
1: in what what year was that? Uh, so he starred really in Euro two thousand and eight, um, right. and then backed that up with some great performances at Euro two thousand and twelve. Um, somewhat of a Gunners icon, obviously in the Premier League era. Um, Prior to that tournament in 2008, he was already building up a a bit of a reputation as one to watch. He was playing for Zenit St. Petersburg. Um, He'd guided them to the Russian title, um, playing in all 30 matches and scoring 11 goals and getting 11 assists um, en route. So there was already interest from the likes of Tottenham and Barcelona uh, by the time he arrived at Euro 2008. I don't know whether you remember this, but... um, Although there was a lot of hype surrounding him, he was actually banned for the first couple of games. Uh, he was suspended for the first two group games. Um, and so there was some concern in Russia that it would already be too late by the time he arrived on the scene. Um, but the rest of the team managed to, to keep them in it and he announced his return to the starting lineup uh, by setting up the first goal and scoring the second um, in a game against Sweden, which helped the Russians qualify for the next round. Um, in the quarterfinal against the Netherlands, he repeated the feat, um, playing a part in Russia's two goals. Um, and he provided the cross for Dmitry Torbinsky's goal um, just four minutes later. Um, so Russia reached the semi finals with a 3 1 victory. Um, and for both of these games, he was awarded the, the Man of the Match award. So Russia surpassed expectations, and Arshavin really uh, was at the heart of it. Naturally, that led to to big things in his club career. He moved to Arsenal, um, where he was a bit of a hit, and he cemented his reputation as one of the European Championships' great success stories um, with his performances at at Euro 2012. Um, Russia were actually eliminated um, in the group stage, having finished third place, Um, but statistically... Um, Andrei Arshavin was still the the best midfielder in the tournament, having registered the most assists uh, in the fewest minutes on the pitch. He fell out, though, um, with the Russian media and the fans afterwards. He basically said, um, the fact that we have not exceeded your expectations as fans is not our fault. um, It's yours. Uh, And that made him a bit of a villain uh, in the country. I guess... With Andre, there was always this dark side off the pitch, though. Um, He was a bit of a naughty boy. He was expelled from school when he was growing up. Um, He's a bit of a character, actually. He has a degree in fashion design, um, and he's also written three books, one of which is called 555 Questions and Answers About Women, Money, Politics and Football. Um, which is (laughs) bizarrely named. Um, That's a lot of
0: questions as well. It's
1: a lot of questions. And and there's a lot of very controversial opinions in there that are pretty sexist and chauvinistic. Um, So we won't dwell on them for too long. But um, he was was just a wild card. I know during his time at Zenit, he was pictured stumbling out of a strip club with two women. uh, And then he jumped on a horse uh, and rode it home. Wow. So um, th- there is this side to Arshavin that I don't think fully showed itself at Arsenal, um, which perhaps um, demeans his career's achievements somewhat. But certainly when it came to the European Championships, he was always, always on top four.
0: Absolutely. I, I remember his his career at Arsenal was so disappointing in many ways because he did have that talent and he showed it, obviously, his four goals against Liverpool in their four-all draw in 2009, everyone was like, this guy is unbelievable. And he really, really was. Um, but maybe it was this kind of attitude that that meant that he couldn't sustain that success. Um, Russians in Euros, there have been a few very good players. I mean, I remember Alan Zagoev in 2012 yeah. was, I think he might have been top scorer in the, in the tournament. Um, so he obviously announced himself. He didn't get his big move. Um, maybe he would have been as good as Arshavin if he if he if he'd done it. Um, but um, yeah, an enigma, Arshavin, I, I would say. Um, an enigma
1: is a good word. Um
0: yeah. But but certainly the sort of player that springs to mind when when you say euros. On the right wing, um, we have a tricky little winger with long wavy hair.
1: Any thoughts? Ooh. Um, Do you know what? A name sprung to mind immediately. Karol
0: Poborski. Correct. Karol Poborski, the Czech wizard we've gone for uh, on the right wing, um, who had an exceptional Euro 1996 with Czech Republic as they Mm. defied the odds and reached the final. Um, I think this was a tournament that propelled quite a few players for Czech Republic into the into the spotlight. I said at the beginning that it's a springboard and certainly for, for the Czechs it was. Um, fairly little-known players such as Patrick Berger, yeah. uh, Smica, uh, and their absolute star man, Pavel Nedved. Mm. Uh, they had just a quality team. And Karol Poborski was another of these players. Th- that season in 1996, he'd been instrumental uh, for Slavia Prague, um, who, who won the league title uh, and got to the UEFA Cup semi-finals. Uh, and he picked up this nickname, the express train. <laughs> um, and that sprung from his, his relentless running. Um, he was just relentlessly harrying defenders. Uh, he had a lot of pace um, and a lot of skill and was just very difficult to deal with. And in this, um, in this year, as in the group stage, he made possibly one of the greatest fullbacks in history Uh, Italy's Paolo Maldini look absolutely foolish at at Anfield. In the quarterfinals, he was named man of the match um, in in their defeat of Portugal. And in the final, he, uh, despite their loss, won man of the match and won a penalty with a a pacey run from wide that was was converted by Patrick Berger. But I think it's one moment in particular uh, in the quarterfinals, his goal, uh, an absolute moment of magic. And you have picked Panenka for his yes. Panenka penalty, yes. and Poborski it was who christened the Poborski lob. <laughs> wow, um, an unbelievable goal that wasn't really a lob at all. It was more of a scoop, the kind of technique you'd use if you want to get the ball <laughs> in a basketball net from two feet away. You know, you, the kind you'd of like describe it beautifully, Arthur. Yeah, I mean, it was it, honestly. The, the ball, actually, when you look at the video on YouTube, the ball actually goes out of shot. It goes so high. <laughs> uh, and I, think, I think Paborski actually claimed later that he didn't really want to scoop it quite so much. Um, but the fact that it was so scooped made it the iconic goal that it was. Later in his career, he'd go on to score uh, an almost identical goal against the same goalkeeper, Vita Baia, uh, mm. when playing for Benfica against Porto. And then another over Edwin van der Sar in, in a European Championships qualifier. So he, he honestly, like, he wasn't, he didn't score that many goals, but, you know, to have such an iconic looking goal as your sort of signature shot was pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, and I said that this Euros was a springboard for the Czechs. For him, it was the start of um, a, a two-year stint at Man United. He was signed by uh, Sir Alex Ferguson um, but sadly, actually, he really wasn't he wasn't able to back up his uh, his European championships. He wasn't able to um, oust David Beckham uh, for a starting position on the right hand side. And he played actually pretty fleetingly before um, heading to, to Portugal with Benfica and, and, and having a fairly successful career. But nothing quite reached the heights of that year in 1996. Yeah, I forgot he would
1: actually had that spell in the Premier League. Um, and it's just a remarkable story, isn't it, really, the Czech Republic? Um, if you go back to their Czechoslovakia days, which is perhaps a little bit unfair, but they've actually qualified for the European Championships eight times um, in the history of the tournament. And on five of those occasions, they've reached the semi-finals or better. Wow. It's, it's a really staggering statistic for a country that are never really considered um, amongst the top in Europe, um, but they just always pull it out the bag in this competition. So I don't think there's any surprise that there's two Czech players now um, in R11. Yeah.
0: They're synonymous with this great tournament. And I just wanted also to to bring up a, a random story that I quite enjoyed, um, which was in 2001, um, Pavel Nedved and Karol Poborski's old club um, yeah. FC Meteor uh, we, who were in Czech Republic uh, they were celebrating their 150th anniversary um, they're a Czech League 2 side so okay. pretty high standard but not the absolute peak and so they invited uh, who they thought was Stockport County who were in England's League 1 at the time Yeah, um, hardly Man U but deemed, deemed worthy of such a prestigious occasion uh, for the, for the Czech side. Um, but instead they came face to face with Stockport Town, part-time employees, uh, basically trained once a week, you know, (laughs) quite a few heavy drinking sessions. Um, what went through the town's players' minds as they were given a red carpet treatment? Uh, and a tour of the, the Czech side's glittering trophy cabinet is anyone's wow. guess. Honestly. You'd just love to be a fly on the wall, wouldn't you? Absolutely. I mean, they were expecting a light-hearted kickabout uh, and they were 9-0 down at halftime. <laughs> <laughs> so FC Meteor were a little bit embarrassed, realised their mistake and took off their best players in a bid to, to save face for their guests. And Stockport went on to lose 14-1. Okay, um, so to get a goal not not yeah. too bad um so one of their defenders david bunyan he was 38 and used to plying his trade in the stockport and district league said right some of our lads were flagging after the first 10 minutes we got there on friday morning and had basically been on the beer all night <laughs> <laughs> so they were so Ill Ill way, prepared though. for this clash they they were and um i think they carried on their tour and uh and and actually had a win. So uh maybe not maybe not against opposition quite as high standard as FC Meteor. Um, well, it's a tough thought... place to go, FC Meteor, isn't it? Absolutely, even for the best players, let alone Gary Bunyan, <laughs> let alone David Bunyan. <laughs> Okay, so up front today, uh, we've got one choice from you, Ben, and then we've got an up for grabs. So we've got four options for Twitter to decide for us. Uh, But starting us off, um, who's your striker, Ben? Angelos Karisteas. Brilliant player. Who else? You had to have a nod to that iconic Greek 2004 uh, side. One of the most
1: gritty and horrible to watch football teams I've, I've ever had the displeasure (laughs) of watching. It was deeply unpleasant and I'm still not over it. Um, Angelos Karisteas epitomized really what was all very positive about that Greek Greek side. Um, He was a six foot three target man. He was good in the air, good at holding the ball up. And he didn't really have an outstanding goal scoring record. Um, In fact, During his career, he never scored double figures in any one league season. Um, He played a bit in the Bundesliga. He played a bit in the Eredivisie. um, And actually two seasons, he scored more times for his country in that calendar year than he did for his club. Um, So we're not exactly talking about one of the elite footballers here, um, but he was Mr Euro 2004. Um, Possibly the most shocking european championships result of all time was the fact that greece um a country who were uh, um really not on the map at that point um who no one fancied managed to make it all the way to the final and then beat uh, portugal in the final um on their own turf uh, to take home the euro glory um And he was playing up front for them. He scored three goals. Uh, He scored one in the group stage against Spain. Um, It was a pretty average goal, to be honest, one against France, Um, actually a very good header. Uh, And he also got the winning goal against Portugal. Um, He just wanted it more. Um, They were playing a lot of set pieces into the area to some quite tall defenders, Greece, Um, and Karisteas was always in there too, uh, and poaching. That's what he did best, and, and that's where he had his impact. He was named in the Euro 2004 All-Star Team uh, and amazingly, um, his performance in that tournament alone um, earned him nominations at the 2004 Ballon d'Or Awards, uh, where he finished 11th ahead of Cristiano Ronaldo, Zlatan Ibrahimovic and Kakar. Um, so good. It, he was a one tournament wonder, but but someone who just shone for f- for three weeks of his footballing career and, and is loved because of it. He's reflected um, on it. And he said, even in 50 years time, everybody will remember that I scored the goal, which made Greece the champions of Europe. We wrote history and my life changed completely um, at that point. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of the press is naturally more negative because of Greece's Horrible style of football. Um, The the Telegraph said a tear flowed down the face of the beautiful game that day. (laughs) Otto Rehagel was the the manager of Greece and he had them stifling some of Europe's best, uh, winning the ugly battles all over the pitch. He was a proponent of robustness, height, effective set pieces, um, and he ditched really any silkiness that Greece had to offer um, in favour of of trying to restrict the opposition to as few chances as possible. And he made Greece a team that were, were better than the sum of its parts, really. He he took a side that contained several solid, reliable defenders, the likes of um, Theophanus Delas, but also um, midfielders like Karagounis that um, were tough tackling and full of energy. Uh, And he made them into a very effective unit. Karas Deas really was the front man um, of this band. Uh, And for that
0: reason, I think he deserves his place in this eleven. Absolutely. I think um, you mentioned their talented midfielders. I think Zagarakis and, and Bassanas as of well course, are both of quality course. players. And actually, I don't know whether these players are simply memorable and stick in the mind because of this one particular triumph. But it strikes me looking back at that squad that it was actually full of much better players than I thought it was. Um, an interesting stat, I think, is the fact that in the group stages, the only team that they actually beat was Portugal. So yeah. they beat Portugal twice in that tournament, and they only won one game in the group stages because they they had a tough group. To be fair, they had um, Spain and Portugal in their group, and Russia, who they lost to in the group stages. So they lost arguably the the easiest game on paper in mm. the uh, in the group stages. So, I mean, Karasteas, enormous part of that that uh, that victory. He just turned into a different player for that tournament. Got he some was key goals at key times. He was a Greek god for three weeks, as we said.
1: And and that's what I love about the European Championship and this eleven in particular. Um, we've got a player here whose Wikipedia page says nothing more than he likes to play play the Greek mandolin, the bouzouki, in his spare time. And yet here we
0: are talking about him alongside the likes of Paul Gascoigne. That's what the yeah. European Championships can do. Exactly. And I think your mentioning of his you know, fairly average goal scoring record throughout his career is particularly important here because, you know, we're looking for players who can just become that different player on this international stage in the Euros. And that sums up karisteas like like nothing else, really.
1: Well, the other striker position, Arthur, is up for grabs. Um, we've got a couple of suggestions. Um, and this is going to be a poll on our Twitter page. So head over to at 11 pods uh, and we'd love to hear from you. You get the chance to vote for the final player uh, in our Euros 11. Um, before we hear our nominations, uh, we've got a couple of friends of the show who have submitted their thoughts. Um, and we'll start off with What If Football. Do check them out on Twitter too. Um, this is their suggestion.
2: Hi, Jake here from What If Football and I've been tasked with selecting the Euro 11 centre forward and it is a very hard task to do. I'm sat here looking at the overall top goal scorers on the list of European Championship goal scorer page. Michel Platini and Cristiano Ronaldo on 9 goals each. Neither really centre forwards. I've got Alan Shearer there in third on his own which is quite surprising but I don't think he really epitomises the European Championship, never really won it. And you've got, for me, Marco van Basten, the volley from 88 in that final against the Soviet Union. Iconic moment, not just in European Championship history, but football history. And Jürgen Klinsmann as well, fantastic goalscorer, won the tournament in 96. But for me, it's got to be Fernando Torres, two-time winner, two-time goalscorer in the final Ended Spain's long, long wait for a trophy in 2008 with that sole goal against Germany. Didn't play too much in Euro 2012, but did walk away with the golden boot at that tournament. Scored in the final, of course, and scored three goals at Euro 2012. And for me, it's got to be Fernando Torres as the kingpin in that fantastic Spain team between 2008 and 2012. Thank you. Bye.
0: Yeah, I have to say, I hadn't actually realised that Torres on an international stage had been quite so important for Spain. I mean, scoring in such big occasions. I think
1: as English football fans, we just have this damning view of Fernando Torres now because of his move to Chelsea and how it didn't work out. It's nice to be reminded of just how good Fernando was during his prime. Um, A really good shout. Thank you to the What If Football podcast for that. A second suggestion, which we're so grateful for, has come in from Jonathan O'Brien. Now, Jonathan is an author uh, and he's recently published the book with Pitch Publishing, Euro Summits, the story of the UEFA European Championship 1960 to 2016. So I think you'd agree, Arthur, he's probably got far more credibility picking
0: this striker than we have. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to hearing who he chooses.
3: My pick for the second center forward slot in this Eurostars team is Marco van Basten, who played in two tournaments, uh, 88 and 92. And it feels strange to recall that van Basten started Euro 88 as a reserve, much to his anger. He was on the verge of quitting the squad. Renus Mickels initially went up front with Johnny Bosman, who had done very well in the qualifiers, and it feels equally odd to look back at footage of him scoring all those goals in the in the competition and realize that he was only about 23 at the time because he looked and played more like a 28-year-old. He channeled his anger at being on the bench into an amazing performance against England. He had four chances, scored three, and saw the other one cleared off the line by Gary Stevens. Then Ireland kept him quiet in the next game, but West Germany couldn't in the semi-final. He managed to shake off Jürgen Kohler at the death and score what was seen at the time as the most iconic goal in Dutch football history. Then, four days later, he managed to surpass it in Munich with that extraordinary volley against the USSR that clinched the tournament. In '88, everything fell right for him, but in '92 it was a different story. He just couldn't catch a break, even though he played really, really well throughout. He had a wonderful-headed goal disallowed against the CIS. He saw his penalty saved by Peter Schmeichel in the semi-final, and he ended the tournament with no goals, even though he'd played every bit as well as he had in 1988. But that's that's top-level sport for you. The margins are absolutely minuscule. And overall, I've never seen a more complete striker play in the European Championship Finals.
1: Marco van Basten. It's a great shout. Um, do check out Jonathan's book. Um, you can buy it over on Amazon. What do you think of that one, Arthur?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to look beyond him. Absolutely. So I'd like to nominate uh, a, an iconic German striker. I've gone for Oliver Bierhoff. Right. OK. A tall, strong, prolific goalscorer. Um, he was mostly renowned for his amazing ability in the air. Uh, a proper target man, um, able to deliver pinpoint headers into the into the corner of the net, um, very much a sort of far post powerful header uh, of the ball. Um, he played in the Bundesliga until he was 22 uh, and was not actually very successful, maybe similar to Karas in that regard, 10 goals in 73 games. Mm. Um, but he was far more successful in Italy. He had stints with Ascoli, Udinese and Milan. Um, and he was famous in particular for Euro 1996. Um, he scored two goals in the final after coming on as a substitute, including the first ever golden goal to win right. the tournament for Germany. It that is classic. pretty iconic, to be fair. I mean, it, it was iconic. Um, and I think he was that striker who was used as an impact sub by Germany in quite a few games in those years. Uh, a year later, uh, they were trailing 1-0 to Northern Ireland. Bertie Vogts, who was manager at the time, pulled off one of the most inspired set of substitutions ever. He brought on Thomas Hassler and Oliver Bierhoff uh, a few minutes apart. And eight minutes later, Bierhoff had a hat-trick and Hassler had a hat-trick of assists. That's incredible. That is, visionary. That is pretty
1: impressive. So
0: do you, out of interest, do you associate Bierhoff with the Euros? I really do, actually, because I don't watch much Serie A football. And so I didn't really see him playing domestically uh, in Italy that much. Uh, And so I associate him with the German national team. And this was his, the peak of his achievements really for them. Wow. Okay. Oliver Bierhoff. Now that's an interesting one. So we've got Torres, Van Basten
1: and Bierhoff so far. Uh, I'll add one name into the mix and that is Savo Milosevic. Very good. He only played in one European championships, which was in 2000. Um, but that's probably my favourite Euros of all time, to be honest. The, the talent on display in that one was an incredible, made it an incredible tournament. Um, but he did win the Golden Boot uh, alongside Patrick Kluivert, even though his Yugoslavia side flattered to, to deceive in that tournament and were eventually knocked out 6-1 in the quarterfinals by the Netherlands. Wow. Um I think perhaps the most iconic moment of that tournament for Milosevic was actually their their first group game, um, which was against Slovenia. Uh, Amazingly, they were actually 3-0 down uh, at the match in Charleroi and Sanisa Mihailovic had been sent off. Um, But on came uh, Savo Milosevic as a second-half substitute and Yugoslavia managed to turn the game on its head um, a Drulovic shimmy on the right-hand side um, and then some, some great movement in the middle from Milosevic bagged him his second goal of the game as they came back to draw three all. Um, and, and to sum up that tournament for Milosevic where he scored five goals, he did so with only six shots. Um, he played only 308 minutes of that of football that tournament. Um, he was a real fox in the box with a 0.58 XG um, ratio um, for scoring goals. So he was super clinical. Um, and I, I think that was what was most
0: impressive about him. I'd be interested to hear from Aston Villa fans about what they thought of him. Because yeah. looking at his goal scoring record for them, it's not actually that bad, but... I seem to remember he picked up quite a, quite an unfortunate nickname at Villa.
1: Yeah, um, he was uh, he was known as Misalotovic um, <laughs> for his time at Villa Park. It, it's a real shame. Um, he, he was a bit of a superstar for Partizan Belgrade, and then again at Real Zaragoza. Um, but unfortunately, it never worked out at Villa Park. Uh, he used to get stick from the fans. Um, he had chance of you're not fit to wear the shirt. And all of this culminated really um, in a match where the Serbian striker, or then Serbian striker, spat towards a group of fans and had to be restrained by his teammates, um, Dwight York and also Blackburn defender Colin Hendry. Um This provokes the heroes and villains fanzine um, to say, quite simply, Savo Milosevic should never play for Aston Villa again. What he has effectively done by his actions is to have assaulted his own supporters. If it had been the other way round and a supporter had spat on him, he would have been thrown out of the ground and banned from Villa Park for a very long time. So I don't think I'm going to be getting many votes from the Villa fans in this poll.
0: Yeah, I think obviously the off field uh, or that was on field, but the 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 elements of his game that weren't footballing uh, let him down. But, you know, objectively looking at it, his goal scoring records, a goal in every three, uh, pretty good for a striker, not bad. Um, and so, um, yeah, I'd be I'd be interested to, to hear whether um, had that not happened, Villa fans think that he could have been a success uh, at Villa Park. Well, we like to
1: name a few extra players um, for a bit of nostalgia, those who are on the bench. Um, and I've got a couple, Arthur. Uh, I wanted to give a mention or a shout out to Bixente Lizarizu. Um, That's because we didn't actually have any fullbacks in this attacking formation. Um, but he did play in three European championships in 96, 2000 and 2004. Um, so it's another name that I kind of associate with the tournament. Um, and, and a fun name to throw in there, Danny Geezer. He played for Spain in 2008 when they won the tournament. I just remember it being such a bizarre thing. I mean, he he was a one-season wonder, really. He scored 27 goals for Mallorca that year uh, and was the top scorer in La Liga. So despite being 27 and never really having played for Spain, uh, he was called up. Uh, He actually made four appearances during the finals themselves, and he scored two goals and got an assist Uh, And then after the tournament, having won it again, his career just fizzled out. Um, (laughs) He's he is actually still playing in the Spanish third tier for Atletico San Um, Loqueno. But Danny Giza, a player who just had that one moment of glory, really, in the
0: European Championships. Excellent mentions. Uh, I'd like to to add Davor Suka to yeah. the mix, mm. uh, a brilliant Croatian striker, uh, remembered for his 1996 lob of Peter Schmeichel. Hamit Alton, top in 2008, was very influential in Turkey's run to the semi finals. Milan Baros, uh, 2004 top scorer, and also Manish as well, cracking goal against the Netherlands in 2004. Very important cog in that Portugal team. So a lot of good names there. But just to run over the, the team that we've got today, uh, we have Peter Schmeichel in goal, a back three of Carlos Marchena, Christian Kivu and Ragnar Sigurdsson, uh, two centre midfielders, Antonin Panenka and Ronnie Whelan, and then three behind the strikers today, uh, Andrea Sharvin on the left, uh, we've got Carol Paborsky on the right and then Paul Gascoigne attacking midfielder. And then up front, we have Angelos Karasteas. And then it's up to you who joins him up front. We've got Oliver Bierhoff, Savo Milosevic, Fernando Torres or Marco po
1: van Baston. Thanks so much for tuning into The Eleven. Thanks for all your contributions. We'll check you out next time. We'll check you out <laughs> next time. What does that mean? <laughs>